Well, I want to join with Pastor Micah in wishing the fathers happy Father's Day. And I was thinking about it as we were singing here, um, that father, for fathers, more than your work that you have at your job, more than your hobbies, more than anything else at some level, the most important task that God has given to you is to be a godly father to your children, to raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. So fathers, let us do that in dependence on the Holy Spirit. We have the great honor of opening the living word of the living God. So if you will, please turn to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. And the title for this sermon is, We Bear the Name. We Bear the Name. And before we get into the word, let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, asking that you would speak to us through your word. We come with faith and with anticipation because we know that you change us through your word. You conform us to the image of Christ through your word. You encourage the discouraged through your holy word. You convict us of sin. You strengthen us when we are weak. So I ask, Father, that you would speak to us. You would meet us exactly where each and every one of us is this morning. All for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The picture that I asked Lucas to use as the background for this slide is the Apostle Paul at Mars Hill or at the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17. He is there before the philosophers of his day boldly and courageously proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And apart from Jesus, my greatest hero in the Bible is the Apostle Paul. His love for the Lord was all-consuming. He had supernatural courage in the face of satanic hostility. We are in need of Pauline courage today. We need men like Paul, men that's you. Paul had this all-consuming passion to preach Christ. He preached Christ in the synagogues, in the marketplace, in the academy, in prisons, in the temple, before governors and kings, in Jerusalem, in Rome. He just preached Christ. He preached Christ when he was welcomed. He preached Christ when he was beaten and left for dead. And as you read through the book of Acts, as you follow the Apostle Paul, There's really only one of two reactions to Paul's preaching. There were either riots or revivals, and very frequently both at the same time. Paul was polarizing in his day. And I think, and I'm speaking of myself here as well, we are afraid of being polarizing. So many times we want to play it safe. So many times we are afraid of going against the current. So many times we are afraid of sticking out. Paul wasn't. Why? What gave Paul such courage in the face of such satanic opposition? We'll be looking at that in Acts 26 as Paul recounts his conversion to King Agrippa. We need to remember who Paul was before Christ met him. Paul was a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a persecutor of the church. In the book of Galatians, he said, I lived to please men. He lived for his own glory, his own self-righteousness. But then Christ intervened in his life. 
Christ transformed him, and then Christ called him, called him to take the gospel to the nations. Paul was called to bear the name of Jesus, and this is our calling as well. We bear the name. In the 21st century, in the United States of America, in this day and age, Jesus calls us to bear his name. And I want you to see how Christ called Paul to bear his name and how Christ calls us to the same sacred task. So our text is Acts 26. And here Paul recounts his conversion. And let's get some context before we get into this chapter. Paul had gone to Jerusalem to preach the gospel. And while he was there, no surprise, a riot broke out amongst the Jewish people when they saw him at the temple. Paul was delivered by the Roman soldiers and was eventually taken north to the coastal city of Caesarea. And the Jewish leaders wanted Paul to stand trial in Jerusalem so that they might kill him in Jerusalem. You see, in in Caesarea, Paul was safe under the watchful eye of the Roman soldiers. But on on the way down to Jerusalem, he was vulnerable. So Paul appealed his case to Caesar. He wanted to go to Rome to stand before Caesar and make a defense before Caesar, which was the right of every Roman citizen. You see, Paul skillfully used his Roman rights for the defense and the advancement of the gospel. The governor of Judea, Festus, knew that Paul was innocent. Paul had done nothing to deserve execution or imprisonment. So Festus called King Agrippa to hear Paul's case. Agrippa was the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, as you know, was the Herod who tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was born. And what Festus tells Agrippa in Acts 25 is, look, Agrippa, all of these Jewish leaders are trying to kill him, and I have no idea why. Now, Paul has appealed his case to Caesar, And I know this guy's innocent, and I don't have the foggiest idea what to say to Caesar when I send him to him, right? So I need your help. I don't want to look like a fool before Caesar, so you help me. Now, the Jews were accusing Paul of being a traitor to the Jewish faith, an enemy of the temple and the law. So in Acts 26, Paul defends himself against this charge by telling of his conversion. And the main point in his defense is this. When Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, Paul realized that Jesus was not an enemy of the Jewish faith, but the greatest fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And Paul ends his testimony by telling how Christ commissioned him to bear the name of Jesus to the nations. Paul must bear the name, and so must we. And I want us to see three realities from this text that motivate us to bear the name of Christ. First, the first reality that we will see is that our past is not wasted. Our past is not wasted from verses 1 to 8. So let's read verses 1 to 8. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. And I love this part. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, Paul begins this defense, perhaps as every preacher should, before a sermon. I beg you, listen to me patiently. Verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, right? Paul had nothing to hide. 
that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? From the beginning of his youth, in verse 4, Paul says he lived in Jerusalem. Now, Paul was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but his parents sent him to Jerusalem as a young boy to ensure that Paul's upbringing and his training were thoroughly Jewish. Thoroughly Jewish. He became a Pharisee. According to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now, what's interesting to me in these first eight verses is that Paul does not bemoan his upbringing as a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees, as you know, got a lot wrong. They built a whole system of works-based righteousness that kept people from God. Jesus reserved some of his harshest words for the Pharisees. But Paul here, doesn't condemn the Pharisees. Instead, he points to the fact that he was taught to hope in the promise of the resurrection. The resurrection. Now, in Israel, at the time of Christ, there were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, and the Sadducees didn't. And Paul would use that difference of opinion to his advantage in the book of Acts. The Pharisees longed for, hoped for, looked for the resurrection. In verse 6, Paul spoke of the promise made by God to our fathers. And this promise in verse 8, right? Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? The promise is of the resurrection. Now think with me on this, right? Think with me. God promised to Abraham and to his descendants that they would inherit the promised land for how long? Forever, right? Forever. Every Jew knew that, but there was just one slight problem. Abraham died. Isaac died. Jacob died. Moses died. David died. You go down the list. The Jewish people were no different from the nations. They too were subject to death. Death and the imminency of death hung over them just like every other nation. How can the dead, how can the promised people of God, right, the chosen people of God, inherit the promised land forever? The answer is simple. The resurrection. The dead must rise. And Paul said, For this hope I am accused by Jews, O king, in verse 7. And I think there's something instructive for us here. Paul knew that his upbringing as a Pharisee was not wasted. As flawed as the Pharisees were, he was taught by them to believe in and hope in the resurrection. And not only that, but Paul, raised in Pharisaic Judaism, knew how to preach to those raised in Pharisaic Judaism. When you read the book of Romans or the book of Galatians, really many of the books that Paul had written, Paul is always addressing this Jew-Gentile dilemma. He addresses the Gentiles and he addresses the Jews. And he says, you, two people groups, who used to be so far off, have been made one by the blood of Christ. And when you read his exhortations to the Jews, he knew exactly how to speak to them. How could he do that? Because he knew what it was like to be a Jew who longed for the Messiah and for the res resurrection one who was raised as a Pharisee and had to abandon that system to believe in the promised Messiah. 
So Paul's past was not wasted, but redeemed and used for the gospel. Friends, your past is not wasted. It is so easy for us to forget the providence of God. David says in Psalm 139, verse 16, before we were even born, God wrote every one of our days in his book. And that includes our days before we came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. It is so easy to grumble and complain, isn't it? Grumble and complain against the wisdom of God. God, why didn't you let me grow up in a Christian family, some of you might say? Why didn't you save me at an earlier age? Why didn't you let me go to this school? Why didn't you plan my life the way I would have planned it? To which God would respond, Who are you? Who are you? Will the pot argue against the potter? Why have you made me this way? But not only that, we need to remember that God, if we are his children, he loves us. Everything in our lives has been ordained for our good, including our past. God redeems our past and uses our experiences, even our failures, for his glory and our good. So did you grow up in a legalistic home? And treasure the free grace of God all the more. When you read Paul's letters, Paul was just marveling constantly at the grace, the undeserved grace of God. Why? Because he knew what it was like to live under the law and not under grace. Did you grow up in an atheistic home, an unbelieving home? then cherish the God who ordered this universe and gives you a transcendent purpose in life. Right, the atheistic worldview, there is no transcendent purpose in that worldview. There is one in the Christian faith. Did you grow up in a broken home? Then realize all the more that you are a beloved child of your heavenly Father who loves you as he loves his own son. So your past is not wasted. In fact, your past equips you all the more to bear the name of Jesus in a unique and powerful way. The beginning of either 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, Paul says that God uses the comfort with which we are comforted so that we can comfort those who are afflicted in the same way that we are. So use your past to bear the name of Jesus. Paul did and so should we. So first we've seen that our past is not wasted. Second, we see that our opposition is futile in verses 9 to 11. Now Paul's youthful hope in the resurrection, the hope that he was taught as a young boy, should have led him to believe in a crucified and resurrected Messiah. When you read Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 speaks of the suffering and the resurrection of the Messiah. So Paul should have expected a suffering and resurrected Messiah, but the opposite happened. When the message of Christ went forth, there was a blindness, a veil that came over Paul. In verse 9, Paul says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing, what? The name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them, often in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul was convinced that he needed to do whatever he could by any means necessary to stamp out the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And I want you to see precisely what Paul opposed in verse 9. I did many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And someone's name referred to their reputation, all that their name stood for. Now, we use a similar expression today, right? I had to defend my name, my character, my reputation. So all that Jesus stood for, his message, his followers, his reputation, Paul became an enemy of it all. He hated Jesus. And you notice that Paul says here, the the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was in a good place back then. As Bookman says, there was nothing, right, on the way to Nazareth. Nazareth was dirty. It was a backwater, unimportant place. Nathaniel, one of Jesus' own disciples, said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So when Paul says Jesus of Nazareth, it was like, man, I thought that Jesus was a nobody. And worse than a nobody, I thought he was just nothing, right? Just absolutely wicked. So Paul was an enemy of the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And here's what Paul did to oppose the name. Paul was commissioned by the chief priests to imprison followers of the name. And you notice in verse 10, he says, I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints. What does he call followers of Jesus Christ? He called them saints. I think as Paul is reflecting on all these people that he imprisoned and put to death, he remembers their faces, as it were. He remembers their conduct. He remembers that they were innocent, that they did nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. They were holy, but he locked them up. He put them to death. He punished them in all the synagogues, which I think means that he had them publicly beaten for their faith in Jesus Christ. He even tried to make them blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ and in the process destroy their souls. And you notice he says, I tried to which means that he was unable to. These followers of Jesus Christ, many of them, would not deny the name. Under the most intense pressure, under the fiercest opposition, they testified of their faith in Jesus Christ. No wonder then the end of verse 11, Paul says, in raging fury against them. Look at that phrase. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul tried to make them blaspheme, and they would not. So he was livid. He was angry. He seethed. And his anger boiled over and drove him to persecute these Christians even to foreign cities. Paul was the great anti-evangelist. He went far and wide to distant lands to stamp out the name. Instead of bringing life, he brought death and destruction. And I can't help but think, as Paul is recounting his testimony to Agrippa here and as he would recount his testimony to Others, that as he tells of his hatred for Christ and for Christians, that he would get choked up. As he would tell of his anger against these innocent and holy and righteous people, how he would put them to death, that he would weep. As he remembered Stephen, who prayed for him, right before he went to heaven. And he would say, Paul would, I put these people to death. They did nothing wrong. They clung to their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul would later say that he is the chief of sinners. And I don't think he was just 
saying that to say that. When Paul says that he was the chief of sinners, he says that because he remembers how he tried to kill the followers of Jesus Christ. So Paul opposed the name, and his opposition, opposition was futile because the more he tried to stamp out the gospel, the more it grew. We are seeing today in this country opposition to the gospel like never before, are we not? But the gospel cannot be imprisoned. Followers of Jesus Christ cannot be silenced. There are those who rage against the gospel. There are those who are triggered by the gospel. Right? Friends, we should pray for the enemies of the gospel. We should pray for our governor. We should pray for our president. We should pray for those who rule over us, who hate the gospel, that they would have a story like the Apostle Paul. There are some of you here today who oppose the name of Jesus. Now, your opposition might not look like Paul's, but still you reject him. Jesus is Lord, and he demands that you submit to him in every area of your life. He demands that you surrender to him and put your faith in him. And his promise to you is that his lordship, his kingship, his rule over you will bring you life and your greatest good. While sin brought you death, while the mastery of sin brought you death and destruction, his rule over you will bring you life and peace. He demands that you surrender to him. So do not resist. Every longing of yours will be met by Jesus. Every longing. Think about this. Paul says earlier that he hoped for the resurrection. And that longing was met in Jesus. All that your heart longs for is found in Jesus. Peace, love, Joy, satisfaction, pleasure, grace, acceptance, hope, forgiveness, relationship, you can find it all in Christ. Sometimes I tell those who are, are caught in the grip of sin, it's like, man, the promise to you that Satan is making is that you can find happiness in sin. But you know that's not true. You know that the pleasure and happiness that sin brings is temporary. And in the end, it will bring you death. You know that. That's why we're meeting. If you could just see how good Jesus is, if you could just see the joy that Jesus would bring you, if you could just see how good my Savior is, if you could just see. But there's a blindness, isn't there? There's a blindness that needs to be overcome by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know what it was like to be in the depths of sin and to think that there was no way out. But then I call to Jesus. And he answered me. I took my kids <clears throat> through the town that I grew up in the other day, just a week ago. I was driving them around. 
And I showed them. This is where I called to Christ. And he heard me. And he delivered me. I'm not the same man that I used to be. Because Christ saved me. And he can save you too. So my plea to you today is that you would call to Jesus and he will not turn you away. There is not one burdened and guilty soul that has called to Christ and Christ has rejected them. Not one. Come to me, Jesus said, all who are weary and heavy laden. And you will find rest. So first, we've seen that our past is not wasted. Second, we've seen that our opposition is futile. And finally, we see that our calling is sacred from verses 12 to 13. Now, it's important as we go into this final point to make a key distinction. Right? Paul's conversion and his calling were unique. Right? Not everything about his life applies to us. Paul was called as an apostle, but we are not. I'm sorry if you think that you're an apostle today, as some today do. Hate to break it to you. There are no apostles today. Paul saw the risen Christ, as every apostle must. And we have not. We have their testimony, their witness, their eyewitness testimony that they had seen the risen Christ. Paul was called to a unique ministry of suffering that we will likely not have to endure. But here was the core of Paul's calling. And this absolutely applies to us today. Paul was called to bear the name of Jesus. And so are we. Let's look at verse 12. In this connection, in the connection of persecution... I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, stop right there, Jesus intervened at the height of Paul's fury against Christians. There is no one beyond saving. At a human level, if there was anyone beyond saving, it would have been the Apostle Paul. When God decides to save, who can say no? So friends, do not stop praying for those you love, that Christ would save them. And notice how Christ saved Paul. First, he humbled him. Jesus shone brighter than the sun and blinded Paul. And Paul fell on his face before the risen Christ. Now this, this is the appropriate posture that we must have before Jesus. The church today has domesticated Jesus. We have forgotten that he is God Almighty, holy and righteous and pure. You read some of these accounts of some people who say that they've gone to heaven and seen Jesus. It's like, really? Every time people meet the risen Christ in the New Testament, they fall on their faces and they say something to the effect of, woe is me, I am a dead man. We need to be radically humbled when we come to Jesus. We need to be broken to see that we are nothing before him. And in verse 14, Jesus says to Paul, he says, Saul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Jesus calls to Paul or Saul twice. Now, when he does that in the New Testament, it's always a rebuke out of love. Martha, Martha. Simon, Simon. Saul, Saul. Saul, I know you, is what Jesus is saying. I know you by name. And you are persecuting me. And it is impossible to do so. And as a farm animal could not kick against their master sticks that drove them, the goads, so Paul could not oppose the sovereign will of God. Because God had determined that the gospel would go forth with power. And if Saul tried to stand in God's way, he would be crushed. And Paul says in verse 15, Who are you, Lord? Paul recognizes that this person is the Lord, his master. Who are you? I don't recognize you. And the Lord says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's as if Jesus is saying to Saul, my name is Jesus. The name, remember, that you have been opposing. And from here on, the entire trajectory of Paul's life changes. Paul's master changes. In verse 16, Jesus commands Paul, Rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Paul's commission changes. Before, Paul was commissioned, sent by the chief priests. Now he received the commission of the great high priest. And Paul is a servant and a witness to the gospel, to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Paul's identity also changes. Paul was the enemy of the gospel. Now he must be a servant of the gospel and a witness to what Christ would show him. Paul became a servant, a servant of the truth. The truth about Christ controlled him. He could not determine what he would say or how he would act. The truth about Christ governed his life. Everything in Paul's life was now in service to the gospel. His intellect, his words, his energy, his very life. And he must be a witness. He must testify that he had seen the risen Christ. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to Paul, Paul, you think I've shown you something? Just, just wait, right? You've seen me. I'm going to show you a lot more. And everything that I show you and teach you, you proclaim it to the nations. Don't shade the truth. Don't keep the hard truths out. Don't sugarcoat the truth. You declare the whole counsel of God. And that was Paul's mission. Wherever he went, verse 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Right? Paul was the anti-evangelist. He would go far and wide into Gentile territory to stamp out the gospel. Now, he must go far and wide with his tongue ablaze with the gospel. Why? What was at stake? Why had Christ commissioned Paul to take the gospel to the nations? Because Christ had died, not just for Israel, but for the nations. And he needed to save them. He needed to seek them because they were lost. And he would seek them out by sending Paul to take the message of life to them. 
And you notice in verse 17 that Jesus is sending Paul to the Gentiles. Think about this. Think about this. We, as Gentiles, we're like, of course, you go to the Gentiles, right? No, no. This was Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, who hated the Gentiles. Just a couple chapters before, he's in the temple telling his testimony, and the Jews in Jerusalem, like they're down with everything that Paul is saying, except when he says that Jesus called me to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And then the Jews say, this man should not even be allowed to live. How could he take the gospel to the heathen, those defiled and wicked and filthy Gentiles? Those Gentiles were the ones that Paul needed to take the gospel to. And Paul needed to see that at his core, in his heart, he was no different from them. He was a sinner, filthy and wicked, just like them. Paul's mission also changed. His mission used to be that of imprisonment. Right? He would throw the saints in jail. But now his mission was of deliverance. He must free those who are imprisoned by Satan, verse 18. To whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul is not sending one to prison anymore. But he is declaring the message of deliverance that those who were imprisoned by Satan can now be set free. Now I want you to notice the, the sequence here in verse 18. The sequence is so important. I'm sending you to them first to open their eyes because they're blind. And how are their eyes going to be opened? Their eyes are going to be opened through the preaching of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus, who dwells in unapproachable light. God uses the preaching of Christ to shine light into the souls of dead sinners. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God. Gentiles, it's you and me. We were under the power of Satan, under his dominion. And he was a cruel master. And Paul must go to set these Gentiles free. To bring them under the good and loving rule of God. And when they turn from the power of Satan to God, they will receive the forgiveness of sins. Our sins are going to be forgiven. Our debt paid for. Our guilt taken away. Our souls cleansed. Our souls are going to be made right with God. And we can approach him with confidence, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And it gets better. Not only are our sins going to be forgiven, we will receive a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. We're going to receive an inheritance. Now the mystery of the gospel that Paul proclaimed in the book of Ephesians was this staggering reality. That Gentiles in the era of the church, would now become co-heirs along with Jews. Co-heirs to the promise of the Holy Spirit. Co-heirs to the promise of the resurrection. Co-heirs of the kingdom. We are on equal status positionally with the Jews. We are loved equally by God. Now again, as a Pharisee, for Paul, this would have been staggering to him. The Gentiles receiving an inheritance, the inheritance. And that was the message that Paul was to take to the nations. 
that guilty sinners can be forgiven of their sins and have the hope of the resurrection. And notice in verse 19 that as soon as Paul receives this commission, what does he do? He says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should, what? Repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. For this reason, right, that he also proclaimed to the Gentiles, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And to this day, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and the Gentiles. Now Paul's message from verses 19 to 23 is twofold. That sinners must repent, and put their faith in the crucified and risen Savior. Repentance and faith in Christ. That Gentiles should turn from their sins and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. And that they should put their faith in Christ, who suffered for their sins, who died on Calvary, and who rose on the third day, conquering sin and death who ascended to the right hand of God. And he is coming one day to judge the living and the dead. He is coming one day for his bride. He is coming for you and me. And as Paul proclaimed this, sinners turned to God. Churches were birthed. Revivals broke out. And Christ accomplished his sovereign will through the Apostle Paul. This is why Paul must go and preach. Paul must go and bear the name. Listen to what Jesus said to Ananias about why he called the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 to 16. Just a really encouraging thing to do as you go through the book of Acts there's three different accounts of Paul's conversion. Acts chapter 9 is the first one. And this is what Jesus said to Ananias about why he called Paul. And Jesus said this, Acts 9, 15 to 16. He is a chosen instrument of mine to do what? To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You see, Paul used to oppose the name of Jesus. Now he must bear the name of Jesus before the kings, the Gentiles, right? before Israel, and before the nations. Paul used to make those who believed in the name suffer greatly. Now he must go and suffer greatly for the sake of the name. Like Paul, you and I today, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we bear the name. We must carry his name to our friends, our neighbors, our family, our co-workers, Wherever God send us, sends us, we must bear the name of Jesus. We go to bear the name, to exalt the name of Jesus Christ so that sinners who loved themselves might turn from self-worship and worship the name that is above all names, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if God so wills, we must suffer for the sake of his name. Let me finish with Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. 
And I think in this verse, perhaps more than any other verse, we have the heartbeat of Paul's ministry. In this verse, Paul tells us who he is and what Christ has called him to do. Ephesians 3.8. He says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. I didn't deserve this. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. We carry with us the greatest treasure in the world. And that treasure is not a thing, but a person. We have the Lord Jesus Christ, and we proclaim him to the nations. And who are we compared to him? Nothing. Paul says here, in effect, I am but dust and ashes, but I proclaim Christ. So let us, with courage, with Pauline courage and conviction, take up the sword of the Spirit in our day and let us declare the unsearchable riches of Christ. And let our conduct bring honor to the message that we proclaim because it is a glorious message. Let us bear his name. Let's pray. Father, it is a wonder that you have seen fit not only to call us out of darkness. You have called us to proclaim the riches of Jesus Christ. What a gift of grace that is. Father, let us never lose our awe at the fact that we are sinners saved by a wonderful Savior. And with hearts captivated by love for Christ, let us declare his glory to the nations so that they might praise him, so that they might live for him, so that they might surrender their lives to him, and so that they might declare his riches as well. And we pray all this in the matchless name of your Son. Amen. Let us go, beloved, with love for Christ blazing in our hearts. Go in peace.